Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Adam C. Hall. And I have glasses on because I'm going to read the back cover of his book to introduce him. We have entered an era like none other in history. The economy of the Western world and the ecology of the entire planet are threatened with the possibility of imminent collapse. In the midst of these dire circumstances, a dramatic shift is occurring within human consciousness. And I would like to interject here that I believe that these two are not just coincidental, that a dramatic shift is happening. There's a deep interrelationship between what's happening in, in, the, in the world in terms of dire straits and this upwelling of human consciousness. We'll talk about that during the interview. Back to the Adam's intro. The ancient prophecies of the Hopi, Maya, and Inca, among others, all point to this moment as the time when humanity will undergo a rapid evolution within a single generation that will affect all future generations. And evolve we must if we were to remain as a viable species on a healthy planet. Adam C. Hall achieved the American dream in all its glory and then woke up to the nightmare of his own life condition. Once a financial power broker and real estate developer, Adam undertook a life-changing metamorphosis that would ultimately alter his mindset from earth conqueror to earth keeper. To come this far, Adam had to come to terms with the misery that was at the center of his very privileged and comfortable life. He endured the loss of all that he treasured most it was only then that he was finally able to open to discover the creative power of the universe that is hidden within each of us. The Earthkeeper ultimately chronicles, that's his book that I'm reading here, the Earthkeeper ultimately chronicles Adam's remarkable journey and illuminates a path for others to follow. Once a conquistador who felt entitled to rule over the earth, Adam <clears throat> transformed into a nature-centric underdeveloper dedicated to maintaining harmony and balance within Gaia's all-providing garden. As founding steward and managing partner of the Earthkeeper Alliance, Adam now preserves pristine wilderness by making allies of developers and conservationists, demonstrating that every one of us has a greater destiny to which we can awaken. An Indiana Jones saga of exotic adventure and redemption, The Earthkeeper is a remarkable story of courage and conviction and a roadmap to a better future, personally and collectively. So I, I, the timing was such, Adam, that I managed to read this entire book cover to cover. That doesn't always happen. And <laughs> it was very enjoyable. And I, quite frankly, I was really hoping that you would still be alive when we did this interview, because just about every other page in this book, you nearly kill yourself doing something or other. <laughs> so it was quite an entertaining story. And uh, I think we'll probably um, recapitulate the story during our interviews, just so people get a sense of what you've been through and what's in the book and so sure. on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, it's great to be here with you, Rick, and all of your audience. And uh, I love the name of your show, Buddha at the Gas Pump. Uh, mm -hmm. where, where did you come up with that, by the way? A young friend of mine came up with it. I was sort of dreaming up a few different names, and they were all sort of trite and, you know, like awakenings and, and so on. And uh, none of them was gelling. And, and I asked this friend for some ideas, and he spat out about a dozen of them, just like that. He's a young guy in his 20s. And Buddha at the gas pump was immediately, you know, got to do it. That's it. Uh, yeah. and, and I think you get the implication. It's just that in this day and age, there, in ordinary circumstances, there are people awakening to states of consciousness, states of enlightenment that were once considered rare or you know, exclusive to you know, rare, rare beings. But it, there's sort of an epidemic underway these days. So that's how we came up with the name. Thanks. I was actually at the gas pump the other day and, of course, thought of you and uh, the upcoming show. And uh, I was really pondering that, you know, who, you know, what is this Buddha at the gas pump? And I, I was pumping the gas, so I guess 
I was the Buddha at the gas pump. There, there you go. I mean, I could have called it Buddha at the supermarket or Buddha at the laundromat or something. And, and in fact, some people in Australia said that, you know, down there they call it petrol and gas pump has sort of a flatulent implication. But we went with gas pump and people seemed to like it. <laughs> well, it was interesting because it also took me back to what am I feeling my, my tank with? You know, right. What am I pumping in? into my life and it, you know of course we one of the great things about humanity is we have free will to make that those kind of choices and so it, it it's interesting what do we what do we put into our own personal tank and i think the, the name of the show is is fantastic and uh, commend you for all the good work that you're sharing with everybody thanks it's a lot of fun as the intro stated that i read you know you were uh, living the american dream you had a 6000 square foot house in malibu was it and you know yeah. ma making lots of money beautiful wife beautiful kids the whole deal a life that most people many people would envy but something wasn't right and you got a stronger and stronger impulse welling up from within you that you just couldn't keep doing this it wasn't clicking it wasn't working for you anymore right well, it was, uh, it was literally killing me. I lived by the law of the jungle, well, at least the law that I was told. I found out the true law of the jungle later on in my journey. But that law was when you get up in the morning, whether you're the lion or the gazelle, you better run like hell, eat or be eaten. So, Rick, I lived a life of getting up before that sun came up you know, headed straight out the door to the office and uh, was living that hard charging life. And I'll never forget one morning I was heading down the Pacific Coast Highway from Malibu into my offices in, in West Los Angeles. The sun was coming up over the Santa Monica Bay and I was on the phone to a banker on Wall Street. And we were in the midst of a, a major negotiation on a, a large uh, loan transaction and uh, it went awry and I before I knew it I found myself cursing out loud and being just disgusted by this whole game of that I seemed to be playing and uh, and then suddenly a dog ran in front of in front of the Range Rover and I screeched on the brakes Brackley had a heart attack. I just pulled the car over and said, my God, I was happening with my life. And, you know, and it's just like I was reaching for the Tums. It became pretty evident that there was a course correction that was due and that it was uh, immediate and that I could no longer procrastinate putting off the inevitable unfolding of, of my life and where I needed to go, although I didn't know at the time. So... That's kind of the beginning of it all, of that quest to answer some of life's most important questions. That's interesting. I was thinking as I was reading your book of historical examples of people who weren't the nicest guys in the world, but whose lives kind of got turned around by some sort of spiritual epiphany. For instance, uh, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus, who became St. Paul, he was like a persecutor of Christians and he underwent this profound sort of awakening and, and completely changed his life. Another example is uh, Valmiki who wrote the Ramayana. He was a, a roadside robber and uh, he, some sages came walking along one day and I won't tell the whole story, but through this encounter he had with them, he turned his, his life 
around. He began to question everything that he had assumed and turned his life around and, and went into deep meditation for like six or seven years or something. And in fact, uh, an anthill supposedly built up around his body. He went so deep and <laughs> he was oblivious <laughs> to it. Uh, Valmiki <laughs> means ant-born sage or something. And then he ended up writing the Ramayana. But in any case, I mean, just a couple of cases in point, there are many stories like this where people had been you know, dead set on a particular kind of more materialistic path, and then something woke up inside and they couldn't do it anymore, and their life underwent a transformation. You're right on with that, Rick. And, it, it, and it's, it's not just a, a metamorphosis or a transformation. I often think of my journey as a, what I would refer to as a metanoia. What does that mean? Well, that is a transformation that takes place. Uh, you become so intent. Uh, you become so focused in your process that it actually relieves the psych psyche and the physical body of all the energies and experiences that had affected that person over a lifetime, or lifetimes for that matter, if you believe in that stuff. So the metanoia is actually moving away from the old definition of self and the old experience of self. And that's why I often say the book is really about Adam 1-0 to Adam 2-0. <laughs> so that, that was, that's kind of the process that I reference as a, a metanoia of letting go of those old stories, painful or old actions uh, that perhaps didn't serve you or your community or your family or anybody. And so, hence the subtitle of the Earth Keeper, Undeveloping the Future. Mm. And this, this transformation isn't always easy, is it? I mean, because you don't know where you're going. It's a kind of a Jack and the Beanstalk story where you're, you're trading in the, the family cow for some magic beans and, and your, your mother thinks you're crazy and, and you don't know if these beans are going to amount to anything. <laughs> and, uh, and yet you have to take this leap of faith. Well, no, no doubt about it. And it's interesting because when I initially started my inquiry, which began, you know, many, many well before I really got focused and intentional about getting on the path and, and uh, you know, awakening to my greater calling in life. But before that, you know, I, I really was a, became a voracious reader of both Eastern and, and, and Western modalities. Um, I was brought up in the Protestant church to a limited degree. And ultimately, one of the things that I recognized, uh, even with all the great teachers and the, and the great gurus and whatnot, that at the end of the day, it's ultimately about creating an, your own experience, to be making that journey and that quest for whatever that may be for you to to make that experiential. Um, and so the path that I've been on and the, what I do share is one of not as an intellectual process, which that process works as well. Uh, there's no right or wrong. There are many ways to transcend yourself. But of course, for me, it was really about having the greater experience of uh, that awakening and heading out into that unknown, like you, that like you referenced, and you know it's fascinating because I um, I go on qu 
quest, vision quest periodically, generally about every couple years and get off the grid and get into environments that are unknown. And I, and the idea of that really is, you know, it makes me think, Rick, about what the Course of Miracles says about fear and, and about the unknown. And, it, and that is, it's not the unknown itself that we fear, it's the idea that it's unknown. Because ultimately what I found stepping into those unknown spaces or those uncharted waters, so to speak, is wow, there's gems there. Yeah. There's so many wonderful things. And I and I don't know much about your path, but I would presume you've found, uh, have had similar types of experiences. I've never been, I don't think I've ever been quite as brave and adventurous as you, although I've done all sorts of wild things and it was very impulsive acting on impulses and hunches and which ended up, you know, working out for me. Uh, but, you know, yours really was a bit of an Indiana Jones tale in terms of the, the actual the physical activities that you, you got involved in. But before we get into more of that, I just want to comment on something you just said about experience, which I think yes. is really important because there are millions of people in the world, billions, who don't really have an experience of the things in which they believe. They're just going on faith and, and that is good enough for them. You know, or maybe they have some kind of intermediary who tells them that such and such is the case or will appeal to God on their behalf or some such thing. And there are even people in the sort of the newer spiritual movements, New Age or, or New Advaita or whatever, who seem to be conceptualizing to a great degree without actually having the living experience of what they're talking about. But I, personally, I think it's about as effective as reading a menu uh, and not actually eating the meal or having <laughs> or ha having someone eat the meal for you and tell you about it or something. You know, you, you actually have to have this, you know, no, this experience yourself. No one can do it for you. That's a critical point. And it, I'm so glad you're, you're emphasizing it. And it, it's like the, the difference is are you living your life to the fullest or is life living you? And it's like, what choices are we making? And the choices that we make experientially are the ones that ultimately get into our greater feeling, place of feeling and intuition. And what I found is uh, that for 42 of my 53 years, I was really stuck in my left brain. Mm. And while I appreciate that and the intelligence of that, there is, was a whole other world that I had yet to discover. And that whole other world is, it, it, it necessitate, at least it did for me, that it be experiential. Yep. And that I can taste it, feel it, look at it and beyond i can feel it intuitively into a greater beyond those five senses that we we all have and uh so hence the the book is very experiential and yes it is adventure adventurous and i think it's my kind of my Aryan nature to want to get out on the edge of it all and that's where i've been pretty much for the last 10 years and having a lot of fun with it but that's not to say it's not without challenges and all the things that come with 
being a being a human being, if you know what I mean. Sure. Well, in a way, it's you became a spiritual seeker in the same way that you were a businessman. You were you were a businessman who wasn't content to do a nine to five job and who took risks and you know who thought big and so on. And when you started to get into spirituality, you brought those same qualities to that quest. Well, it, it, yes, indeed, and you know, and I'm I'm a strong advocate, Rick, that to discover our greater capacity to live life in its fullest ways. What occurred for me was you can't just put your toe in the water. Let's get in, let's give it a ride, let's go for it. And sure enough, just in that process of showing up for whatever was calling me at the time, it was one thing led to another. And I met one guide, one trusted mystic, one teacher, and ultimately connected deeply with nature and Mother Earth as perhaps one of the great teachers that we all have, and it's readily available. She's here to serve us and to hold us and love us. So that was all about taking that first step and showing up and moving myself forward because my sense is that if I did not do so, first and foremost, I wouldn't be of any use or good to my three amazing daughters. And I have a beautiful granddaughter now. And secondarily, how could I fulfill my life's journey and serve this planet at a time when this planet is calling all of us, I believe, to really show up in a new and more dynamic and purposeful way. So mm. it's, uh, it's a, all a process and a good one. And uh, I honor all of you folks that are in that process and doing that because you you have a, a, a comrade in arms in me, and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that point about showing up and about just taking the next step. What is that old proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step or so, yes. something like that? And that as you take the step, then new the next opportunity presents itself. There's a great book by Suzanne Siegel called uh, Collision with the Infinite. Her mantra became, do the next obvious thing. It will present itself. Just do the next obvious thing. And then one thing after another will un unfold. Well, I, I would second that. And, and when I certainly was out in the wilderness, per se, there was all kinds of interesting signposts that came along. And that could have been, as I shared a story in the book about when I went to the Hopi and Navajo nations on, a, on really on my first big quest, out in the middle of the winter in a storm, there was an old Indian man standing out there at Minton and kind of looking at me sternly, Rick, like, what's wrong with you, white man? This is a snowy, stormy day. Look around. There is nobody here, and you should not be here either. <laughs> <laughs> and you went out anyway. <laughs> yeah, I went out anyway. I said, well, Nearly I, froze to death. <laughs> I, I, I shared with him. I said, you know, I, I, I may be a, a young man, but I, I, I'm looking to get my feet on the ground and on this sacred earth that you sh have shared over the millennia 
And he just shook his head. He go ahead, have it your way. Go <laughs> go ahead if you want. Yeah, you know what it kind of reminds me of is the, is the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Richard Dreyfus has you know he gets zapped by the aliens, and then he has this vision implanted, and he has to pursue it, and all of the conventional. Uh, you know, forces from his wife to his friends to the government, everything else is trying to tell him he's crazy and to get him to stop. And he just can't stop. He's just driven, you know, making mountains out of his mashed potatoes, trying to, you know, what is this? It means something. <laughs> you, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the movie. Exactly. Uh, well, exactly. Yeah. It's like you know, just you, know, you begin to salivate it. You know, a, a Wilbur, Ken Wilbur wrote that book, One Taste. Mm hmm. And it's and it is one the one taste of the capacity and the fullness that we we all share in our humanity. But that one taste was certainly what is something that I began to doggedly pursue the greater truth of of my existence. And uh, and as the as you've been sharing, it, it's been a it's been a hell of a ride and a hell of an adventure and fulfilling and opening me to just do new and wonderful things in, in life that I never even dreamed that uh, existed. So it's, it's neat. And uh, that one taste, better watch out. Yeah. You might get hooked. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's uh, retrace our steps and, and get into some of the specifics. So, you know, you're, you had that incident where you almost hit the dog on the Pacific Coast Highway and, you know, you're really stressed out and, you know, your business was doing well, but it was, you know, something was telling you you had to do something else. And, and you, then you brought this news to your wife, like, I've got to go on to this spiritual quest or something. And obviously she wasn't too enthusiastic about that, but you, you kind of kept plowing ahead anyway. And, you know, one thing kept leading to the next. So what, what was one of the first sort of, I guess one of the first really outside the box things you did was to announce that you were shutting down your business. You know, it's interesting, the decisions that we all make and the decisions that I made at that time were profound, like the one you just mentioned, just shutting down the business. And I had w been to a holiday party, Rick, at a friend of mine's house in a big, one of those big she, she fancy types of parties. And they had a palm reader there. I had always kind of just smirked at those type of things as kind of woo woo, far out, new agey type of stuff. And so I was a, a skeptic, but my wife at the time nudged me, go there, go, go over there and, and, and spend time. So I ended up going and sitting with this palm reader and she said one word, separation, separation. You are experiencing separation. And I became obsessed with that word. What was she talking about? Am I supposed to separate from my wife? My, my, what is this, this life? And I, then I picked up a few books and started thinking about all of this. And ultimately what I chose, and that I def, I'm not necessarily recommending any of the experiences that I had because your path and each of your path is your path. And it's, that's key. And ultimately the path that I took was, well, I needed to take a respite and a timeout, so to speak, from life 
in its entirety because I felt that I was in danger of jeopardizing my own well-being and those that I love. So it began with shutting down the business and just recognizing what is going to be true in my life and what are the who are the people that I want to cultivate and surround myself with and support. And so I couldn't do it in an old structure, an old model. And I made a choice that I needed to separate from my wife at the time. So it was a bit of swerving the, the bus, so to speak. You gave her the opportunity to join you. In fact, you got on your knees and, and almost begged her to join you, you know, but she, she wasn't ready to do that. She was not ready to do that. And that was a critical point when I walk, went down for an even, a stroll on the, on the sand in Malibu and asked her whatever has occurred or whatever's going on, let's do it, let's work on this and do it together. And all the therapy and the marriage counseling that, you know, she decided to not even stop going to that. And then I recognized, well, I'm gonna have to take this journey alone. There's an old and Bengali I, saying, it's uh, if, if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. Yeah, so that was what was obviously offered to me. And I said, okay, well then those are the choices I need to make. And my inquiry into separation got a lot deeper really fast after, after that. At some point, some sort of disembodied voice came into the picture. So what was her name, Lisa or something? Some guardian angel type thing was started to happen. Yes, and her name was Lila. Lila, right. And that is, that is, that is the essence of uh, in Sanct or Sanct is, you know, is the play of life. I was really in the midst of what some say, Rick, is that dark night of the soul where, you know, you don't know if you're going to make it or not. And I had no idea. And uh, I was drinking too much. And I moved from the 6,000 square foot big house I had built a few years before to a 600 square foot little place down in Malibu. It was a nice shack, I must say. <laughs> but it was, I, I certainly downsized. <laughs> One morning, I woke up with a with just a terrible hangover, and I took a walk on the ocean and seaside, and the ocean happened to be lapping back and forth very gently. It was very calm, and, and the birds were out, and it was very quiet. Nobody was out, and I sat down, and I put my head down and just began to weep and asking for help. Where should I go? Where should I go? And that's when I first heard this soft, loving, kind, nurturing voice. I looked up like somebody around. <laughs> and have I, you know, wait a minute, I'm losing my mind. But I sat for a moment and took a few deep breaths. And there was the voice. And it was this voice that I gave the name Lila to. And she really ultimately became one of the angels in my life. 
and a, a guiding energy, a loving, guiding, nurturing energy. I believe that when we attune ourselves inwardly to listen, to listen deeply, to listen within, that within us all, there is that angel or that voice that is ultimately serves as a great guide. And in many traditions, in particular, Eastern traditions, Lao Tzu often speaks of that inner sage. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you, however you want to language it, it's truly that inner sage or one of the inner sages. You may have more than one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could be just um, interpreted as one's own sort of deeper intuition, and you're just giving a name and a voice to it. It could also be interpreted as being an actual guardian angel of some sort. And sure. that whole thing actually fascinates me. Um, it, I, I've just been writing something this morning because I'm putting together a proposal for a presentation about that topic, and I'm going to have a group discussion uh, in late May with four people, all of whom have stabilized perception of subtle realms of creation and, and see angels and whatnot as routinely as you and I see people walking through the mall. But in any case, that's a whole interesting area for exploration is, you know, the, the subtle realms of creation that can be open to our perception if the senses are refined enough to see them. But for many people, it comes not as a sort of a, a regular phenomenon, but just as a sort of some kind of impulse that comes every now yeah. and then, you know, do this, don't do that, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in, in my sense is, is not to be dismissive of the idea of an angel or a voice, whatever. It doesn't matter. What yeah. matters is what we're feeling and what we're called to. Yeah. And what's heard. I spent very little time in the questioning of the experience and lots of time in the cultivation of the experience, Good. yet still interjecting questions that were about guidance, mm -hmm. not about credibility, like who are you or what is your, you know, code and, <laughs> you know, or anything like that. And I don't mean dismiss any of that. What I'm saying to you know, I would, I would say is an everyday person on the path, getting on the path, cultivating the path, crystallizing their own life and their journeys. Hey, it's really about the experience that you're having. And to just what I found, honor that yeah. and honor all those seen and unseen that I begin to interact with big time after that first intersection with Lila. Yeah, you know, just about every spiritual tradition has iconography, paintings, statues, scriptural discussions of these sort of unseen intelligences. And, you know, some of them actually say that when somebody makes the decision to get on the path, as you put it, to aspire for deeper spiritual re realization, it's like the angels re rejoice, you know? It's like, oh boy, we got a live one here, boys. Let's, let's give them some juice, <laughs> you know? And you do get a lot of support and a lot of subtle encouragement and help from who knows where. You, you, you don't necessarily perceive where it's coming from, but it's there. And so many people can, can relate to what you're saying here, I think, in terms of their own experience. You're right, right on with that, Rick. And ultimately, the little nudge that moves you 
to the right or moves you to the left or it says, okay, let's step back mm -hmm. for a moment. Let's take a pause to honor ourselves and what's unfolding. Those little nudges, those little impulses come from the universe. And, you know, one of the things that is was fascinating for myself and one of the reasons why I gravitated to the work that I was doing on the path. Of course, there's so many amazing modalities and teachings and wisdom keepers and earth keepers and the, the few avatars that we've had in our lifetime during this uh, lifetime of the planet. It's all good. And it, it ultimately all is about cultivating the our greater truth of who we are in our own humanity, individually, but collectively. And, you know, one of the things that I found, and it is also ties kind of into the experiential nature of it. I wasn't interested in tinkering around or fiddling around through this life or another life or two or whatever to really show up. So I... I created an intentionality of cultivating to the best of my human capacity and the best of my reasoning and rational self and also the part of myself that wasn't so reasoning or rational to hold all of those capacities to ultimately really to show up in a quantum way, to show up in a level that really says um, we can move beyond just an incremental step. We can jump and unfold into a, my greater calling and to really dream a life that I was being called to, to live that. And so that's why, Rick, I really gravitated to shamanic traditions and to the traditions of uh, the indigenous cultures of the world, but primarily indigenous cultures of the Americas, meaning the Native Americans, Hopi Navajo in particular, the Mayan, and to even a greater extent, the Incan traditions that I really gravitated to. And in all those indigenous traditions, really the practice of aligning with Earth, with the Pachimama and the stars, was their connectivity was essential to, to Earth and to the universe. And so the shaman in those communities really are what some would say were walkers of the worlds. In other words, they lived and resided in the manifest world, the visible world, but ultimately operated out of time and in, in a place what is often referred to as infinity. There's no time or space. There is only connectivity, the oneness of it all. So to walk between those two worlds and those traditions have been instrumental in helping me on the path to balance spirituality. They seen aspects of my life, the physical, what you're seeing now, with also what is uh, the, the spiritual aspects in my greater connectivity to the cosmos. So I don't want to be rambling on here, and I don't mean to get too sidetracked, so forgive me, but it's quite fascinating that we really live in an amazing time, that in this time on this planet, 
And in particular, over the last 30 to 40 years, the ability for each of us to fully blossom or fully awaken into what we all carry, which is an enlightened state of being, to awaken to that, to shed the old skin like, like a snake sheds its skin, to do that into quantum leap into this greater awareness and, and enlightenment. Yeah, beautiful. There's a lot of really nice nuggets in what you just said. You know, there's that Chinese proverb, may you be born in interesting times, or may you, <laughs> may, you, may you live in interesting times. And what makes these times interesting is not only kind of like the severity of the crises we face, but the evolutionary opportunity that we also face or have. And uh, I, I interviewed the biologist and futurist Elizabeth Sartoris a, a couple months ago, and she said that even in terms of uh, biology and, and evolutionary history, it's evident that the greatest crises brought about or were concomitant with the greatest uh, surges of evolution on the planet. And I think that works as much for spiritual evolution in our current time as it does for biological evolution, you know, throughout history. These are the best of times and the, the worst of times. I mean, we, we really could exterminate the, the human species in the next hundred years. And at the same time, there's this uh, conduciveness to spiritual awakening, which I don't think has really been so lively in other times, even the 1950s, if you think of it, how many people were kind of like getting all enthused about spiritual awakening back then. But now it, there's an upsurge and it, you can ride that wave if you choose to do so. It's like a good, good surfing day for enlightenment. Well, well it, and that's a perfect analogy. The surf is up. Yeah, the surf is way and, up. Uh, are you going to get on your board and get in the water and ride the wave? Or are you going to just sit on the sand and check it all out? All right, stick your toe and, in. And so I'm, I think that's a great analogy. And just a couple real-time observations that I, I'd like to share with you on some of these very salient, important points that you're making, Rick. And, and it's true. That, that old ancient proverb is one that is not necessarily about interesting times, because, of course, it is interesting, but that's a little bit of a Chinese curse in its own way, they say. They call it a curse, but I find it to be a kind of a... To have a positive connotation. I do too. And of course, it's semantics and it's just wording. But I often just say me, we are living in a, a very exciting times where we have infinite possibility. And you beautifully referenced that because um, there's obviously much talk about the point of chaos on the planet and some of the things that are happening. Interestingly, in the Wall Street Journal today, there was an interview with the famed biologist E.O. Wilson, who just is publishing his latest work called A View of Eternity. And one of the things that he was quoted as saying was, humans do not know what they're doing, that we do not have real sensitivities to where we are going. Whatever your worldview is, I would sense that there is no denying that the capacity of the planet at seven and a half billion going to 10 billion in most of our lifetime <laughs> immediately, and, and the things that are happening around the biodiversity, which is well documented, the extreme degradation of the environment. Let's not point fingers because it's just 
humanity and man that is and man uh, humankind I should say that is really moving in a direction that is rapidly putting humanity on the extinction list. It really is. I just want to interject here. I mean, if, if, if people think that that's an exaggeration, if you read the, the UN report on climate change that just came out uh, and, and various interpretations of it, if we experience even a six degree centigrade rise in temperatures worldwide, it's very unlikely that humanity will be able to survive. It'll kill all the plankton in the ocean, which will you know cut off a major source of oxygen for the planet. It'll decimate most of the agriculture on the planet. 10, million, 10 billion, we won't even be able to sustain 1 billion if that sort of thing happens. So there's this sort of a, the word acceleration comes to mind. There's an acceleration of destruction, yet at the same time, there's an acceleration of technology where all kinds of incredibly interesting and potentially you know, life-saving technologies are coming up, alternative energy things. And there's also this acceleration of consciousness or spirituality. And the way they sort of intertwine and interact is fascinating to me. Very fascinating, and, and hence another another reason to know that we do live in interesting and exciting times. Yeah. And uh, Wilson actually commented in his interview that we are, are rapidly moving into a world that really could be managed just by a couple high-tech tech operations that can you know, control climate or bubbles or spaces, mass spaces to be able to even occupy the earth. And, you know, as a futurist, I would say, well, that may be far out and may be something that drives a lot of fear, but it really gets back to what you're referencing about the rise in spirituality. And, you know, what I often say around a lot of things that are happening with population and environmental degradation is, yes, it's true that this planet is overpopulated. And the big issue with our overpopulation is that it's all about doing. We live in a doing world. And so, yes, there are too many people on this planet doing what humans do. And the challenge that I see for humanity right now, very relevant to our collective awakening, is that we need more people being, being who we are at the core of our humanity. And this is really goes to the heart of why I even published The Earth Keeper uh, on developing the future, because my sense is if in, there's any way to have greater connectivity of ourselves with our being place and greater connectivity with Earth, that that in its own right is going to make a massive difference in the crisis and chaos that that is now unfolding on this planet. And so that's very much part of part of this conversation. And I'm grateful for you, Rick, to bring up how this rise in consciousness and in spirituality is key and it's essential. And it probably in my, my sense is the one area that has the potential to save ourselves 
not save the planet because that planet will be fine but you know planet's fine it's that's a little bit of a human arrogance thinking yeah. we're going to save the planet my gosh we can do this but one thing we can do is step into our yeah. own being place you know yeah. what i'm saying oh i know what you're saying and this is a great point uh, you were talking 10 minutes ago about the shamans having this capacity to live in the so-called real world and yet at the same time live in infinity you know live in the subtle world and that to me is the definition of enlightenment that we are these multi-dimensional beings and most people are locked into the just the surface dimension without uh being aware of all the deeper dimensions an enlightened being or you know a true a shaman in the true sense of the world word has the full range open to their conscious awareness in a continuous living way and you know you're just talking about doing rather than being or being rather than doing we need to do actually but the doing yes. sh the doing should be grounded in being yes and there's a verse in the gita which is go yoga stakur karmani which means established in yoga established in being perform action and obviously the way to do that is to become familiar with being by taking recourse to it on a regular basis, diving into that and then engaging in action. Frank Sinatra said it best, doobie doobie doo. You know, you wanna, <laughs> you wanna go back well, and forth. <laughs> well, it, 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 it is really that dance of that yin and yang energy. And it's what comes from deep within the unmanifest into the manifest. And it's, it's exactly right. It's like, are you gonna allow the tail to wag the dog? And when we're doing and doing and doing, dooby dooby doo, the tail is wagging the dog here. Yeah. So it's a, it's just a matter of whatever that language may be, but it, it's a very relevant and important point at this time. Yeah, but perhaps we could talk a bit more about spiritual awakening as the ultimate fulcrum. You know, the way a fulcrum works, if you want to move a big rock, you don't just try to lift the rock. You have, you have something which just sort of, with a minimum of effort, actually can accomplish a great work. And we know from physics that the subtle is more powerful. And we know from spirituality that consciousness is most subtle. So if we could sort of establish ourselves there uh, consciously and function from there, then we could have the sort of the, and it's not only about power, because that implies controlling nature again. It's really about operating from the level at which nature itself operates, the intelligence which governs the universe. If we can be one with that intelligence, then we will no longer be dominating nature, we'll be cooperating with it. Yes, and I'm with you on that. I man's uh, or humankind i should say his dominion of the earth is coming to a close didn't work out so well it didn't work out so well and i can only attest to that in my own personal life and the journey that i walked and ultimately now to focus on earth keeping and i'd like to just expand for a moment if it's okay with you rick on some of the points that you were just making around consciousness. Please, yeah. And um, one of the things that I have really experienced and really sit with often in quiet contemplation and also in practice being that I'm in the world, but I'm not from the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the and world, but not of it. It's, it's, it's an interesting paradox of our humanity. And some may take exception to what I am about to say, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. 
but the rise in consciousness, the light shining into my own awareness, the ability to move beyond five sensory perception, the greater connectivity to the oneness of it all, this is consciousness. This is awareness. And this is really, I sense what many refer to as the witness, the really being in the, and Eckhart refers to it as presence mm -hmm. and very powerful. And, but one of the things that, uh, that I've observed, Rick, is that consciousness has levels. Consciousness is of levels. And, you know, as my consciousness grew, then my openness in myself, I expanded into this greater awareness. And it also, it, the level of my, my intelligence expanded as well. But I would put forth for consideration that consciousness while important and key in cultivating our greater capacity as human beings, that it's not enlightenment. And this is a very shamanic perspective. As I have journeyed deep within the out of the manifest world, and that those journeys and shamans typically do their work with lucid dreaming, or some do medicine, like ayahuasca, to like Timothy Leary worked in, to, to experiment to open his mind. Not that I advocate any of that, but ultimately in looking and going to a space, a time out of time space and into infinity, that ultimately consciousness, while it cultivates so much, uh, but it's, it's not the entire capacity that we have as humans. I put it forth as an exploration because what I'm suggesting here is that the place of the Akashic, the place of the field beyond all things that we have known as humans, ultimately is a, is a greater field of the universe. And the, in that place is a greater sense of the enlightenment uh, that is the purity in that place of what some refer to as the Godhead, where those two things are one, is beyond even a conscious state. And it's hard to even put words to any of this. And I'm probably already said way too much, <laughs> but I figured why not? <laughs> no, that's okay. And uh, a couple of uh, Vedic literature verses come to mind that r relate directly to what you said. Uh, one is from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Arjuna asked Krishna, what is knowledge? And then Krishna replied, knowledge is to know the field and the knower of the field. To my mind, what this means is that the field is like the field of the relative, which has vast potential for knowing all sorts of details. The knower of the field is, we could say, consciousness. And you, you can't just have one without the other. Our Western society is largely you know, knowing the field without 
knowing the knower. And then there are some who feel like only knowing the knower is important. But really, actually, once the knower is known, once, once the self is realized, there is vast range for potential exploration to know the field more deeply, to know the, the relative world more, more intricately and subtly. And there's another, one more thing I'll, I'll throw out, and then we can bounce it back to you, and, and that is there's a verse in the Rig Veda which goes something like, Richo akshare parame vyoman yasmin deva adivishve nishay du, which means that the impulses of intelligence which govern the universe reside in the transcendental akasha, reside in the sort of field of pure being. And then the verse goes on to say, and I don't know the Sanskrit, that those who know that field receive the support and cooperation of all those impulses of intelligence. And those who don't know it, what can those impulses of intelligence do for him? We kind of live in a society where we don't know that sort of transcendental field very well. And so we rely on you know, fragmented, limited, man-made knowledge, which can accomplish things, but which always has unintended consequences. You know, we do one yeah. thing over here and there's all these terrible side effects. Uh, but if we could sort of act from that level from which nature governs the universe, then the impulses of our creativity, our technologies, everything else could be much more comprehensive or harmonious. They, they, they could produce desired benefits without unintended consequences. Well, it, and that's a good point because it is it is about how nature governs the universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a great new field coming forth called biomimicry. It's been around, but its credibility is really gaining speed of how that how we, too, can create designs and use nature's technology to put forth new ideas. And it's happening with green building, in water systems, in other systems. And my sense is that adapt, our ability to adapt to things like nature are going to be key. And one of the things that came to me as you were sharing, Rick, was the thought that we are sharing here around consciousness, enlightenment, all the same type. Where did, what is that ultimate source of that? And one of the things that I share in the book is this theme of undevelopment. The deep scholars in this space, and whether they were, you know, a lot of the Vedic traditions do speak of this word involution. You know, we are uh, so geared towards evolution. Yes, we do evolve and we spiral in time from our birth to death, hopefully, and hopefully in a meaningful and purposeful way. But at the same process, the same time, there is a process that it can be cultivated and, and worked like a muscle that is really a, what I refer to as undevelopment. And that's really a code word for involution. And that is simply the process of deconstruction, a process of, of taking away and releasing and doing so uh, graciously in a way that serves and, and allows our, uh, our soul, if you will, if that's a big word, many, you know, would say yes or no, but allows, say, our spirit or whatever that is for you to, or that God 
to flow freely through this human hardware that we have. And that process, what I found, is very potent. And it's the alchemist of old, well, you know, often speak of how we turn lead into gold. But ultimately, indigenous alchemy is really this process of where if we were moving ourselves through kind of a, a chemistry experiment where we are in the crucible and where we are in the fire and in the vapor and in the air and we're ultimately crystallizing what is there when we synthesize it all, what pops out through this alchemical process is this sense of enlightenment and this nothingness <laughs> and it's no word can put it there and so my my conversations are often and where i'm really heading is a lot of really around this power around involution and this idea that we too can return to that point in time where the universe or the cosmos or some would say god we were infused with that into our cellular body and into our coding. And when we return to that place, we know that we too are the co-creators of our life. And uh, so not to get overly abstract or esoteric here, but really to say, you know, it, it's not always about adding more and stuffing more in our head. It can really be about simply unloading the baggage that we carry within our human vehicle. And such as, you know, the ancient Chinese proverb is the master pouring the tea to the student and the tea's just flowing over as he's pouring it. And says, please, uh, you're, my cup is just pouring over. And exactly, we just are wanting to pour it all in. But to do that, let's empty the old junk, it kind of goes back to what we're, I was pumping at the gas station. Am I pumping the junk into my tank and polluting it with all this stuff? Or am I putting something that fulfills my life and serves my own journey to be of greater service and a greater capacity to, to, to others? Well, you know, Jesus, Jesus said you can't, shouldn't pour new wine into old wineskins, you know, and I think what you're saying about transmutation and we need to become a more fit vehicle for spirit or for presence. And there are actually people who sometimes prematurely awaken kundalini, you know, awaken spiritual energy and end up in mental hospitals or end up severely destabilized or traumatized or something because the vehicle was not prepared, the vehicle was not fit to handle that yeah. intensity of spiritual energy. There's a lot to be said for, you know, making ourselves more fit. And this term involution, I, the way I understand it when you say it is that it implies kind of a, an inner exploration, taking the attention within and, and there discovering the, I, I think you said the origin of the universe or the origin of our, our connection with the universe or something. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes. And in addition to that, it's really an energetic connectivities. It is that deeper space. And there's what I would consider one of the big conversations happening in the, the field of awakening or 
spirituality is this epi epigenetics and Bruce Lipton is talking a lot about this because it's really about how collectively we hold our environment and ultimately that is what informs our DNA and I'm no scientist here and I'm thankful for that in many ways and but the scientists are doing great work around what I call rewriting our software and the process of rewriting software is really involves quite a few things and not that we need to get off on that but the idea is very evident that we are writing software that is serving where we're going how we want to share how we want to serve what can we do in our greater capacity with the gifts that each of us have and this idea is okay it's time to rewrite software and like any software programmer, it's a continuing process. And you don't want to be operating on an old system <laughs> when you can really be operating on all cylinders with a new system. Yes, we have this incredible hardware. It's just stunning, this human capacity. And there's a great conversation that's happening, and I alluded to it a second ago, and it's about this new human. And many, many folks are beginning this conversation that this, the, this new human is uh, upon us. And it's the dawn of this new age of humanity. And I am fully recognize that in my own human capacity, that this, the, the, the new 2.0 or whatever your version may be is upon you. And you made a good point, Rick, because the ability to hold that capacity necessitates that we do the work, the ability to even take it upon ourselves so as to not have this premature kundalini lightning bolt of energy that shoots through the system to you don't want to be short-circuiting that or blowing out the fuses. Mm -hmm. So the idea and what I think, and I'm observing both in the domain, in the world out there, the quote-unquote the, the unconscious world, so to speak, is that there is a great stirring. There is something that is moving in the, they may, many do not know quite what it is. I sat next to a billionaire at a luncheon not too long ago, and I, an elderly man, and I said, well, how are things? The markets are incredible. And, they, you know, at the time, they, last year, they were up 20, 30 percent. Not so good. I just got this tremendous unease. And I said, well, I said, what, what's precipitating that? He goes, I, I don't quite know, but I'm hearing that from my peers. and. Then, you know, you know, that's when we become very complacent. And it's like, so the work that you're doing and sharing is so important because the ability to have a greater capacity. We live in the, this time where there is the potentiality and the possibilities is unlimited to leap into this new human, so to speak. And some say this is the homo sanctus luminous, the, 
the human, the sacred human of light. Some say, like my friend Barbara Marks Hubbard, this is the homo universalis, you know, the human of the universe. And then others like Alberto Vialdo, uh, who wrote the foreword to my book, it's the homo luminous. The ancient ones have been speaking and sharing this for hundreds of, if not thousands of years. So these, is, these are interesting things to explore together as we go forward. Yeah, it's all, all very interesting, actually. One particular point I want to bounce off of that you just said of when you were sitting with that billionaire and he said he felt this sense of disease. Uh, here in my town in Iowa, there's a corporation that is planning to build this huge grain silo on the, on the edge of town right next to this property of some people who've lived there for 40 years or something. And, and a lot of people are really upset about this. The farmers like it, but the, the people who are trying to make this a green community and a more enlightened community and so on are kind of uh, upset about it. And when you think about what that grain silo is going to be used for, it's going to be used to the whole corn industry, right? And c corn does what? They make a lot of high fructose corn syrup, which contributes to obesity and diabetes. They feed pigs, which, and those pigs live horrible lives. And the people who eat the pork, they probably be, could be on healthier diets. They use it for ethanol, which is a really stupid way of getting alternative energy compared to other possibilities. So the whole industry is, uh, this, hasn't, this thought hasn't even entered the minds of the farmers, but the whole industry is based on stuff that really wouldn't fit in very well in a more enlightened society that really doesn't deserve to exist ultimately. <laughs> yeah. And that can, that's just a case in point. There, there are so many examples of, so many. of foundations of our economy, you know, really big building blocks in our economy that really need to be pulled out and you know, pulverized because they just don't fit in to a more enlightened society. I mean, the tobacco industry, the fossil fuel industry, you can just genetic engineering, we can go on and on down the list. And so I think that the reason this billionaire is feeling nervous is that he doesn't know it consciously, but there's a, a deep rumbling taking place in world consciousness, a deep a sort of a, a giant is awakening. And yes. I think that a lot of structures to which people are deeply committed uh, financially, emotionally, in many other ways are going to come tumbling down. Maybe I'm being optimistic and idealistic and naive and so on, but I've felt this for decades, and I've, you know, it still hasn't really happened too much yet. But if if we're going to shift to a more enlightened society, it's going to have to happen. And well, and very much so. And I and I, in my worldview, uh, for whatever it's worth, it is happening. You know, it rem it reminded me of uh, a hike that I used to take in Malibu that it became quite famous when Eckhart made a reference to this hike in his book, The New Earth, because he too took this hike. And when you get to the back of the canyon, there's a sign there that said, beware, the structures within are dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and what a, a powerful statement about these times, because ultimately the the structures, the the pillars that uh, that you are referencing in our collective economies and cultures, 
uh, whether that is our reliance on uh, carbon. Uh, we, you know, we live in a carbon-based world, a carbon-based economy. That doesn't work. We live in uh, political systems that are being torn apart and tested. And we're recognizing the, the, the frailties and the, the deep shortcomings of a democracy, although it reminds me of Winston Churchill, it's the best thing we got going. Right. Uh, and this, maybe this is the truth. But the point really is, the point really is, that wherever our modern or postmodern societies are, economically, culturally, whatever it is, wherever we are in that arc of time, they truly are in a state of collapse. Now, the towers came down in 11, uh, I mean, 01, uh, 9-11. Mm -hmm. So we certainly symbolically know that, that we, uh, as conscious, sentient beings in that capacity, although we are so much more, but let's just be in that capacity because we're in this doing world, ostensibly getting to more of a being place to do. But the idea really here is, what I am finding and what came to me is one of the deeper wisdom teachings of Mother Nature is the ability of, uh, of, of ourselves as humans to have a deep root and a deep grounding uh, within our own lives and within our own communities. And that, that grounding is essential for what is now evolving around humanity. And the idea here is, is that the human to not be snuffed out and that the flame will burn bright. And of course, I don't operate from a place of fear because it's really not about that. That's out there. It's about what's in here. It's about our own internal flame and our own sensibility of this greater capacity that we've been talking about. And that's about, that's what ecology, ecologists have spoken very much about. And that's really the thrust of what I share in the book is, is that, and that in order to have that deep root, in order to build those pillars in our lives and those foundations in our lives and in our communities and in our families, it, it's essential that they're built to last. And what I found was in the 1.0, I wasn't built to last. It was, it was unsustainable. So the process of creating sustainability, and I ref often refer to this as conservation, preservation, and restoration. I refer to that in what I do in with the land and real estate, but I also, it originates from conservation, preservation, and restoration of myself and what that takes to do that. And if you think about that root that each of us plants in the, on this earth as we move across this great planet of ours, we certainly want our soil we want it to be healthy. We want it to be vibrant. And we want it to be purposeful. And the idea here is are some of the things that you just spoke around, around the corn industry and the genetically modified food industry. The issue there is not a right or wrong issue. The issue there is how does that affect the root 
of ourselves and our humanity for eternity. And when we look at that, we will quickly recognize it poisons the soil. It poisons our root. It takes us out of the place of our place of our heart as heart-centered beings. So it's really a, an important conversation. And that's why I often think, Rick, and let's let's talk a little more about some other stuff, but I often want to say, what is the bottom line here? You know, what is it? My sensibility and what came to me as I was re-entering the world after my quest, of which is never ending, but coming back into life to serve and to do things. But I'm 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 not I'm just no longer a predatory capitalist. I'm I'm still a capitalist, a conscious one. Is what is the bottom line? And what is the bottom line in my life? And what is the bottom line in the life that I'm living and and what I'm doing both in my inner world, in my outer world? And that bottom line is what I refer to as the quadruple bottom line. And that's about people, planet, profits, and purpose, to be purposeful in what we do. And the idea is if my actions are not accounting for that bottom line, then I am not building and supporting that route. And it's okay because some would say, well, making a, a dime or making a profit is not, you know, would say, well, that's not really a, a, a spiritual thing. Or, and I, many don't say that because even the ones that ostensibly are, quote, unquote, most spiritual are, are very active in this arena. <laughs> but I sense and I put a call out to the listeners and everybody, what is your bottom line? And if you practice this quadruple bottom line, my sense is that we will all be better off and it, it begins with each of us. Lots of good stuff in that one. One thing that came to mind as you were speaking is everything we see in the world is kind of a, a manifestation or a reflection of collective consciousness. If we see a city that's full of pollution and ugliness and crime and you know all kinds of bad air and whatnot, who created that city? Obviously human beings did. And they, they did so from a certain level of consciousness with certain motives and so on. I guess where I'm going with this is that, back to that idea of consciousness being the ultimate fulcrum, and that if we want the, the outer manifestation to be more wholesome and beautiful, then that which gives rise to it has to be more wholesome and beautiful, has to be awake, alive, enriched. I guess this pertains to your involution point, but I think that if it were possible, a society comprised largely of enlightened people would spontaneously manifest a lot of outer beauty and purity and lack of pollution and all that. Just the, the way they would naturally conduct themselves would, without, yeah. without a whole lot of intellectualizing about it, would na they would naturally evolve technologies and pursue lifestyles and so on that would make this a beautiful world. Even the, the you know, obviously the jungle is beautiful, but even the more human fabricated parts of it. Well, yes, Rick, and that center point, that fulcrum, and many would argue about this. I don't, because I can only share what I have experienced. And that is, 
at that fulcrum and in that center point, innate within all humans, within humanity, is that enlightened state, that mm -hmm. place uh, that lies at the core, that we know that the place of love and being in the place of awareness and in service to the whole of the life on earth, that, that organism, and which of course we're a big part of it. And to being to serving that wholeness is essential. And this is these are real and important and timely conversations. So it's 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 fun to be sharing some of these things. Yet at the same time, you know, it's you it's often said amongst the the gurus and others that are the avatars or so well it's all perfect yes it is all perfect however if you look at the actions taken by those who have chosen to be in the world i mean you can live in the ashram or live in the mountains or live in the teepee there's nothing wrong with that but if you are choosing to be a conscious enlightened being in the world and fully integrating our greater human capacity, then we know this from watching those that have come before us, those sages and those wisdom keepers and those earth keepers and those day keepers that have really held our humanity together magnificently to this moment that we're talking now. If we observe that, they in their perfection are in doing and being engaging in the world because they know that when children go hungry, 16.7 million in America alone, or much of the world exists in conflict, or that there's this sense, deep sense of social injustice, this dominion of earth and all these things that exist on earth, we know that it is our responsibility and duty to show up to attend to it yeah. for the betterment of everybody. You were talking about levels of consciousness earlier, and uh, you'll have to meet my friend Timothy Conway, who lives right there in Santa Barbara. Um, I love it. Yeah. yeah, he wrote an article on his website, which is enlightenedspirituality.org, enlightenedspirituality.org, I believe, which he titled The Three Levels of Non-Dual non Reality. And the first level, the surface level, is a level at which it's obviously not perfect. There's all kinds of things that are broken and that need fixing. Then there's a deeper level at which fine, all is well, well and wisely put, everything is divinely orchestrated, it is all perfect on that level. And then there's a deeper level at which nothing ever happened. The, you know, it's the unmanifest, the universe hasn't arisen yet. And all these levels have their own sort of validity on their own levels, but you can't mix them up. You know, it's not right to, to sort of take the reality of one level and I would say misapply it to another level, it ends up being uncompassionate. You know, for instance, if you say, it's all perfect, the starving children in Africa, whatever, uh, it's all divinely ordained, then you're misapplying levels. 
and someone needs to go to Africa and help the children and so on. And, and that person, let's say they're an enlightened person, they're aware of the level at which it's all perfect and, and, and they're also aware of the level on which nothing is happening or ever happened, but they're working to feed the children. So it comes back to that theme we've talked about earlier about the enlightened being someone who traverses or encompasses, embodies all levels of reality simultaneously and is able to sort of give each level its due. Put into context in a good way, uh, and uh, I had often spent time contemplating exactly what you articulated quite well there, and that it is, it is that sense that, you know, it's whatever level we are operating on, or whatever level we're not operating on for that matter, whether it's the non-duality or the true duality, it's the, the trap is ultimately to be existing in one of them and to think that there's to the exclusion a, of the others to the exclusion right, of the right. other and that in in that case then we see the rise of dogma you know extremism primarily we've seen it in religion over the last couple millennium mm -hmm. and so we we now have this capacity always have but the capacity that you know, it's the bottom box. It's none of the above. <laughs> or, or, or all of the above, depending or on how you want. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I, I sometimes, I, I, I like all of the above, and then I also, also go to, well, when you mesh them all together and you throw them all in the pot, you get what some would say is the, the magic or the miracle or the magnificence of grace on earth and heaven and earth so it's 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 cool and mm. we'll check it all we'll 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 take we'll take all those boxes and we could get to share with one each each other all of those great human uh, experiences that that we're all sharing and having together mm. nasargadatta maharaj uh, you, you're probably aware of him he wrote that He's that, that sage of, uh, where was he bombay said uh, that the measure of spiritual maturity is the extent to which one can uh, incorporate paradox and ambiguity, to be comfortable with paradox and ambiguity. And you know, reality itself is paradoxical. A physicist will tell you that. I mean, there's so many levels of reality as described by physics, each of which has its own laws, but you can't misapply them. You know, the, the physicist can tell you about a level at which gravity doesn't exist because it hasn't arisen yet. But his understanding and appreciation of that level doesn't let him jump off buildings with impunity. So you really have to give each level its due. Well, yes, very much, very much, very much so. And to, honor, and to honor those things, I mean, for myself, I I do spend time every day before I I launch launch out into the things that I'm I'm doing and what I'm being out there the best I in my capacity. But ultimately, to recognize that uh, you know it, it it is being a human being is it is extraordinarily challenge and challenging and you know i work to be gentle with myself and for, forgiving of myself and, and and where i feel that that's necessary and uh and to recognize yeah well it may be all perfect and it may there may be nothing ultimately to forgive at the end of the day but hey this is part of the joy of the journey and to really to re recognize that and you know one of the things that always comes to to mind a little bit is that you know life on earth and i forget who said this 
life on earth is is addicting <laughs> except reality which is unbearable <laughs> it's like okay there you go we it is so addicting all of it but yes we also hold this greater capacity and greater truth that is oftentimes can be challenging or difficult <laughs> and that's that's the kind of joy of joy joy of it all and uh so it's 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 fun to fun to be in that evolutionary process and that involutionary process <laughs> hmm. so in your book you talked about this one development that you did up in big sur where you you kind of bought the land along with a bunch of investors and you preserved it and you were planning to develop a small portion of it to sort of generate income or something but essentially to preserve the whole thing it's a big world i mean have you done more projects now since then and is this kind of expanding to become a greater great an enterprise that could actually be seen from the international space station yeah. <laughs> well i i don't know about if you can see it from the space station but if you can see it if you're if, it, if, you, if you have an eagle eye you fly like the eagle you can mm -hmm. You can zoom in on it, and yes, the answer is yes. We have been moving the paradigm, the the shift that I had around real estate when I came to Big Sur, and that shift really was about. And and, and this may provide some ideas or thoughts to those that are in a place where they've come to an intersection in their life where they're not only weaving in their inner and outer lives is one, because ultimately who we are and what we do really should be one and the same thing. And if they're not, then I would encourage everybody to focus on creating a lot of equanimity around that part of their lives. But this, when I came to that intersection uh, many years ago, was where was I going to re-enter into the world? It really said to me, well, I'm coming back to Big Sur, and I'm in Big Sur. How can I serve the real estate industry? And the real estate industry is defined by highest and best use. What is the highest and best use for real estate? And that is, well, the maximum amount of development rights and entitlement rights you can stack on a little piece of property. <laughs> well, what we're recognizing is that doesn't necessarily work and it's not sustainable so i kind of rewrote that paradigm for myself and just said well wait a second we can create conservation and preservation and restoration work around the land we can undevelop it in other words we can take away entitlement rights and in doing taking away some of those development rights we create what we leave we leave some development that's, it's not like not in my neighborhood, nothing. It's the quadruple bottom line, but, mm -hmm. and it's taking into account the sensitivities not only of the land, but the neighbors and the community. And when we look at land in that capacity, when we honor the rivers and the, the woods and the animals and the, all the flora and fauna, and we look at that, what we recognize, what we, remains is something that has far more value because it's in living in a harmony uh, with that. And so that is, that's really what we're up to. We're working on a project in Hawaii. It's uh, very challenging. It's a 16,000 acre project with four and a half miles of ocean frontage, 
fortunately, through a confluence of events, both economic and also my strong relationship with the owner of the property, it's not going to be built into a massive resort community with golf and homes and jet strips and hotels and all that. And uh, we're also looking at some new projects now uh, that are all about repurposing golf courses that are really what I refer to as dead golf to recreate a recreational space and to create garden space and to do that in association with homeowners groups. And instead of having something that's blighted and is impinged upon value, it incre it's accretive to their value. It mm. increases the value of owners. So we're doing things that are different around the land, but they're very oriented, oriented to how communities can be in greater relationship with the earth and in the process of being in that greater relationship, I should say, support their root in that on that earth so that those pillars are unbreakable. And uh, that's why we're also focused on urban gardens and getting youth into gardens. So our work around uh, the environment and land is underway. It's a new model. A lot of people scratch their head and say, you know, hell no. But we're marching forward patiently and uh, very intentionally and really working to restore or help to restore humanity's connection to the earth. And this big buzzword now that we face, we have this disease uh, called nature deficit disorder, NDD, it's real. And they did a study, Rick, uh, in Great Britain amongst children and 70% had very little or no connectivity to the animals or the plants or the earth. I was at dinner uh, with Lizanne the other night to honor a dear friend, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Tobias, per perhaps one of the foremost prolific uh, scholars and writers of our ecology in relationship to the environment. And he said many things that would literally make your hair curl up and go, my gosh, what's happening on this planet? But the, one of the points he made was, well, they did a survey of kids in Arizona, middle school kids, high school. They know twice as many, or actually more than that, brand names. You know, Frito-Lay versus, oh, that is a woodpecker. So... We have something that needs to attend to, and our conversations are about cultivating that root, that viability of our humanity, and helping others to their connectivity to it to, in support of, of the wellness and the vitality uh, of this planet. One thing that I find fascinating, and it, it came to mind, I think we've sort of touched on it, but it bears repeating, it came to mind as you were speaking, is that um, everything, again, is, is a manifestation of the consciousness of the people that have created it. 
And there's so much of a, a mentality on this planet where it's there's a very kind of narrow focus of what is good for me now, what is good for my company's bottom line, for the next quarter, for the investors and all that, without any regard for the, the broader consequences of what's being done. So whether it's the tar sands in Canada and the pipeline they want to build across the country to bring all the oil to the Gulf Coast so it can be shipped to China, or, or what? There's so many examples, but it's always this thing of, I want my profit, and I want my company to have its profit, and to hell with the consequences. And, and let's funnel money into convincing people that there won't be any consequences. And it's just so fascinating that you, having undergone this transformation, metaniasis, I think you said, was the word you used, something like that? Metanoia. Metanoia. It's so fascinating to see how your outer activity has changed as a result of an inner transformation. I think that's the gist of this whole interview and the gist of your story, is that everything you put your energy in, into now is done so differently than you did when you were in a sort of an egoic consciousness. Now you have a broader consciousness, a deeper consciousness, a, something which kind of literally embraces the whole planet. It does on a deep level. Consciousness is unbounded. If you establish yourself in that unboundedness, then you know every the world is your family. And this it's so fascinating to see how that has manifested in your life and what you're doing with it. It's it's really commendable and and a, an inspiration. I hopefully for many many others. Well, thank you, thank you, Rick, and uh, you you as well for the work that that you're doing. And one of the things that warms my my heart to to no end is all the incredible uh what i refer to as earth keepers because mm. i believe we are earth all earth keepers that has that have come into my life and that are coming into my life makes me know for certain that not only is there hope for this planet and our humanity but our best of times and our greater unfoldment is now uh, dawning upon us. I see that, I feel that, I'm experiencing that. I went to the Amazon jungle two years ago for the fifth time in the deep jungles of Peru down there, the Bolivian border. And I tell some of these stories in in my book, uh, The Earth Keeper, as you, you know. And I checked in because the jungle is the womb of the Mother Earth. This is the place that biologists refer to as the hot spots, where there is the most biodiversity, whereas there, there's the most proliferation of life in all its forms. And, on, and from vertebrates to just pure organisms. And when I went to check in there and just did a check-in, not in Peru, but just recently as well on another vision quest, when I checked in there, everything is operating. It's challenged and it's troubled, but it's all operating. The system is working its way into greater balance. And the key here is, like Dr. Wilson said, as I referenced earlier, is, you know, humans have to become more conscious. So we 
know what we're doing mm. <laughs> and where we're going. And the ship can be pointed in new directions. And that's happening and it's happening in a big way. And it's great to be connecting with others that are making it happen. And all of you who are listening in your own little way are the ones that will make it happen in a bigger way, in a more purposeful way. And every single one of us is essential in this process. As you referenced earlier, Rick, the collective is shifting. The collective needs to shift. But for that to shift, each of us too must shift. And as we shift, we all have our dharmas. I would totally suck as a real estate developer, but I have my dharma, you have yours. And, you know, and so, you know, however one can uh, manifest this, as we were talking earlier, you take a step and the next obvious thing presents itself. So it'll become more and more apparent to each of us, I think, as we go along. In, indeed, and that's the beauty of it. Can you imagine if you shed your old story, you undevelop that old story, and you already knew the new story? Wouldn't be, a, wouldn't be a very interesting book, you know? It wouldn't be very interesting, and it wouldn't be very fun. Yeah. And in, in the process, my gosh, we would miss out on the greatest gift that has been given to us, and that is the ability and the capacity to be co-creators yeah. and to be collaborators with others. So the time really has come on this planet to shed the old stories and to write the new story, the story that each of us is dreaming into being from a place of our heart's truest desire and from a place that our soul is calling us to, to come home to. Beautiful. Well, we should probably move toward concluding this interview, but I just, just want to say, first of all, that if anybody listening to this has not really gotten the point about, you know, why a whole discussion about saving the earth and ecology and stuff like that is relevant to, you know, someone who is primarily interested in spiritual development or spiritual awakening, think again. Because, first of all, if we don't save the environment, there isn't going to be a place for any of us to get spiritually awakened unless we reincarnate on other planets or something. And secondly, this, as, as Adam and I have been discussing, this whole spiritual awakening thing is very much tied in with what's happening on the planet and the, and the things that you see in the news every day about you know, global warming and Greenland melting and all sorts of things that are going on. So anyway point made on that. Second, this book, is very, we didn't talk too much about it during the interview, but it's a lot of fun and uh, there are all kinds of interesting stories in here of things that Adam did as he was following his quest. Like, for instance, uh, getting on a, a horse in Canyon de Chez <laughs> in New Mexico, having not ridden a horse since he was four years old, and that was just a, sh a Shetland <laughs> pony at a fair or something, and galloping at breakneck speed through a thunderstorm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was interesting. And uh, sweat lodges and snowstorms and climbing that. How did you get off that rock in Sedona, Bell Rock? You it's harder to climb down from something than it is to climb up. And you never told us how you got off the rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, exactly. I would, 
it's easy to get up there, but you know, how the heck do you get down? And I got down, I would say is probably something that took me a while to, to learn over my 53 years. And that was to go slow, mm. methodically, and to really be present with the rock that I was standing on in each step that I took. So when I got into that grounding and that centering, it really wasn't so difficult. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I was thinking you maybe called a helicopter or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are other stories. I mean, you know, falling off a, a four-wheel drive vehicle and breaking your collarbone and your leg and crawling to safety and confronting a mountain lion. And, uh, oh, God, there's so many interesting things in it. So it's an entertaining book um, with a very profound spiritual current running throughout. And one other thing I'm curious about, um, which readers of this book won't know unless you tell us now, has Gigi mellowed out at all, your ex-wife? Is she kind of realizing that you're onto something after all, or no progress on that front? No. Uh, all right. Well. <laughs> still, still very excitable. Tough and nut to crack. It's a, it's a tough nut to crack, and it's interesting. When we have great characters like this in our life, because it is our lives are like theater, mm -hmm. and the question is, do you want to have theater of drama, my particular case is, as it's shared in the book, is really um, kind of a tragic comedy with an adventure, adventurous twist, like an Indiana Jones style, as you referenced. Or you can live in a place that really is one that decides that, well, my play needs to be whatever it's, I'm being called to. And, you know, and for her, it's, those are the choices that she has made, I'm very grateful because her character and she as a person is giving me the greatest gifts in my life. First and foremost, my, my three amazing daughters who I, I love deeply and I have a powerful, deep relationship with them that we're cultivating all the time. And then secondarily, without Gigi's push, without her absolutely pounding away, then perhaps, and I'll never know, I wouldn't have really took that deeper look into myself and looked more concretely at who I was and where I was going. So it's all You ever good. read Carlos Castaneda's books? Yes. So many, she, many, was, she was your many. petty tyrant. Yes. And yes. And, you know, some, you know, it's, it's the villain, the petty tyrant. It's the things that Castaneda referred to, Don Juan referred to as the things that are the pest, the energy that tries to eat upon you. And this is a very important thing to work with that, not to battle it and to create conflict and war, but to create, come from a place of the heart and peace and to move beyond the old story to write the new story. And you know, just to get a little esoteric here, she may very well be a very highly evolved spiritual being who took on this role to play that part in the play of your lives, you know, who had some karma to work out with you, whatever. We can't be judgmental and say, oh, Adam is the big spiritual guy and his wife was too unspiritual to come along with him. In the big picture of things, we just never know who's what. It very much so, exactly. And that's why 
everything is a gift in its own way and not to overly generalize it, but she gets the Academy Award. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. She gets the award for doing that and showing up. And I'm grateful for her in more ways that I could, than I could share right now. Great. Well, that's a nice note to end on. All praise to Gigi. <laughs> <laughs> ah, great. So let me make some concluding remarks in general. I've been, I've been speaking with Adam C. Hall, who is author of The Earth Keeper. I'll have a link to his website and his book on his page on batgap.com. This interview has been part of an ongoing series. There are about 225 of them in the can now. And you can find them all on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, which is an acronym for Buddha at the gas pump. There you will also find a number of things. You'll find a discussion group, uh, one that is sort of dedicated to each particular interview. You'll find a donate button, which I appreciate you clicking if you have the inclination. There's a place to subscribe to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There are several different indices of uh, the interviews. There's an alphabetical one, there's a chronological one, there's a categorical one. So poke around in there, you'll find all sorts of stuff. There's even a page where you can vote for your favorite interviews. Um, and because sometimes people ask me what my favorite ones are and I don't like to say it. I don't feel like I should say it's, I have my favorites, but those are just my preferences. And uh, so there's, there's a place where you can do that. So I think that wraps it up. So thanks for listening or watching. Thank you again, Adam. It was great fun. Great fun to be here with you, Rick. Look forward to carrying this important conversation further and connecting with you and all of your listeners uh, as we head down the path together. Yep, towards that light at the end of the tunnel, which is not an oncoming train. It's actually something <laughs> nice. <laughs> hey, hey, by the way, on that note, I'll never forget, I left a business meeting and I walked was in the book and I, wa I walked the, the gentleman to the elevator and I said, I see light at the end of the tunnel for this problem we're having. And the guy deadpans, he looks at me, that light could be a gorilla holding a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> Down the elevator he went. <laughs> I had a friend who stepped into an elevator one time, not realizing that there was no elevator there. And at oh. the, the very last moment, he had the wits to jump across and hang on to the take cables or something and, and <laughs> to save his life. <laughs> anyway, on that note, thanks for listening or watching, everyone. Uh, oh, listening. I mentioned listening. There's also a link to an audio podcast that you'll find on backapp.com. Let many people like to do it that way. And we'll see you next week. Thanks.